0: you can open in your Bibles to 1st Timothy chapter 3 and if you need a Bible um, you can just lift up your hand and the ushers will bring a Bible to you so you can follow along with us and I, I'm not a hundred don't quote me on this again but I think there's still some lights off in the back it looks kind of dim in the back and people there might be trying to read the the, the words on their page so if any there, there's nobody back there usher wise but if somebody could just you know, if there's any switches that are down, lift those up. And we are in First Timothy chapter 3. When the church began on the day of Pentecost... There was very little preparation in terms of organizational structure. In fact, most of the apostles probably couldn't have even told you what the church was that Jesus had spoken about. He had made an announcement that it was coming, and then he made claim to be the head of it, that he would be the one that would build it, and then he very simply gave to his disciples a commandment, or a commission and a commandment. The commission was that their role in the church when it began would be to make disciples. It's the great commission that we read of in Matthew chapter 28. To teach all nations the things that Jesus had taught them. And then after giving them that commission that they were to teach and to feed what Jesus told Peter individually. He then gave them a commandment and that commandment was that they were simply to wait. They were to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit was poured out from heaven upon them, and then in that time, they would know what to do. But Jesus didn't give them any type of structured model of what the church was to look like. There was no map of church government that was laid out. There was no model of what things would look like. There was no mechanics of the inner workings of of how the thing would go down. There was no recommendation of programs that they would uh, have or how to do demographics and where to send people out and having strategic operations. and, And none of that was given at all. It was just very simply, he said, feed my flock and wait for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you. Well, 10 days after Jesus ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit came. And in a matter of about 20 minutes, the size of the church went from about 120 that were gathered in an upper room to 3,120. And it happened in about 20 minutes after Peter preached a sermon that takes all of three minutes to preach. It wasn't long after that that the number of the disciples Increased some more and they found that they had 5,000 brand new baby Christians to take care of Still without any structure or any model of how it was that they were to organize or to facilitate and meet the needs of this many people And thus was the early church Now as time progressed there was structure that was put in place By the time you get to Acts chapter 6 which was just a couple of months later the need arose for a group of people to come alongside and to deal with some of the more practical issues that the disciples were facing, dealing with problems and conflicts and things of that nature. But it was still a very loose structure. You had the apostles, which were the precursor to, you know, the pastors and elders of today. And they dealt with the spiritual needs, the feeding from the word of God and the praying, and the dealing with the spiritual stuff. And then there were what became known as the deacons, which were diakonos, it just simply means servants. And they were the ones that handled the more practical needs, uh, dealing with finances and the business of running the church and all of that kind of thing. And so you just had the simple structure of those that tended to the spiritual things and those that tended to the practical things. And you say, well, what was the form of church government in the early church? And the answer is, we just don't know, because the Bible doesn't tell us. What we do know is that by the end of the first century, there were roughly three forms of church government varying you know, in operation that had somewhat formed. There was, first of all, congregational form of church government, where the church, more or less as a body, as a whole entity, made decisions as far as what would take place within that flock, that local congregation. Then there was what was known as Presbyterian models of church government, which presbytos simply means like an elder board, you know, a group of pastors, a plurality of leaders that would kind of make decisions and charter the course that the church was to take you know and and that was the Presbyterian model and then there was the Episcopos model or what what we would call the Episcopal and what that simply means is that there was a bishop or a head pastor a senior pastor that would more or less uh, you know make the final decision and consult with the elders and the deacons under him and that and it was more or less that type of a model. You say, well, which one of those is correct? The answer is no and yes. The fact is that the Bible just doesn't really tell us. And I believe that the method of how a church is structured governmentally is not really all that important to the Lord. If it was, I believe he would have laid it out with clarity with specificity as he gave instructions to his disciples as to how things were to run or it would be given to us by paul that this is the proper way to structure you know with all of the various roles and things but it doesn't do that i don't think the method is very important to god but there are a couple of things i think are very important to god and first of all i believe that the message is very important to god And that's what Paul wrote to Timothy about in chapter 1 concerning the doctrine of the Christian faith. The doctrine of the faith, the message of the gospel, the purity of the word of God, that is very important to God, that that never be compromised, never be watered down or replaced with some structure or a series of programs or anything else that would take the place of the word of God. That's important to God. The second thing that's important to God is the Messiah. And that is that Jesus remain the head of the church. The Bible says over and over again that it pleased the Father that Jesus would be the head over all things to the church. And that in all things, he would have the preeminence. And so Jesus calls the shots for the church. He's the one that tells us what is acceptable and what isn't and essentially that's what paul gave to us in chapter two he said that men are to pray you know without wrath and doubting lifting up holy hands trusting in the lord leaning upon him that women are to have their role in the service of the lord and their place in god's kingdom and that jesus is the one that determines what and where you know things happen and people serve and so the messiah that's very important to god And the third thing that is absolutely critical, important to God when it comes to this entity, this body that is called the church, is the man or the men that run it. And that is the type of character or the type of men or the type of man that is leading God's flock. That is also very important to God. And so as we come to chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, the apostle Paul, is going to write to this young pastor, Timothy, and he's going to talk to him about the type of man or the type of men that God wants ruling over his church, leading the flock of God and feeding them and what type of men they are to be. And so that is what we have as we come to chapter 3, the characteristics of the men that run the church. We begin in verse 1, and Paul writes to Timothy, and he says this. He says, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. He uses a word that we don't hear very often in Protestant forms of Christianity, and that is the word bishop there in verse 1. And the word bishop, very simply, in the Greek language, is the word episkopos. And what it is, is, is that it is a combination of two Greek words. Epi, which means over, and you, perhaps you've heard of that before, that word epi, that prefix in the Greek, which is over or upon. And the second word is scopos, which means a scope, or a realm of vision, or a arena of sight. And so what the word literally means is an overseer, episcopos, someone who is over a scope of vision, or an overseer. And that's what the word bishop means, episkopos, a person who is an overseer or a leader. Now, it's important for us to understand that there are three words in the New Testament that are used interchangeably. The words bishop, elder, and pastor are all speaking of the same thing. They're used interchangeably in the New Testament. The word bishop, or episcopos speaks of the office, or the ministry. It is the office of a bishop. The word elder speaks of the man, that he's to be someone who is mature, someone who is seasoned in the things of the faith. It doesn't mean that they have to have gray hair, obviously, although no hair is close behind that, you know. Uh, it doesn't mean that necessarily, but it means that they're to have a degree of maturity. They're to be somewhat seasoned and know their way around the faith a little bit. That's the type of man. He's an elder. And the word pastor speaks of the method. A pastor is very simply a shepherd, and that is that he is to lead and he is to feed. And so it all speaks of the same man, whether it's the ministry, the type of Uh, man that he's an elder or the method that he is leading he's pastoring he's shepherding those words are used interchangeably and it's important for us to understand that that is an office or a role within a church body that is ordained of god and it is important to god that it is god that uses human instruments to be vessels through which he leads and feeds his people in the earth now Paul also gives to us in verse one, the job description. He says, if a man desires the office of a bishop, that is to be a pastor or an elder or a leader, the job description, it says that he desires a good work. Now, the word good that he uses there is not something that speaks to us concerning preference, but rather it speaks to us concerning honor. In other words, it's not the kind of thing where Paul is saying that you go to career day and, and you know, you see uh, elevator operator or hotel doorman or president and CEO of a corporation and pastor. And, and these are all the good jobs. And then over here, you have garbage collector, plumber or something, you know, and, and then now you, these are the not so, that's not the context in which he's using this word good, but it speaks to us concerning a degree of honor or what we would say as excellence that there is excellence in this and then the other word that he uses is the word work and the term that is used there is is not a it's not a generic term that just means like a job but it's a term that implicates difficulty that's what the word is that there's a difficulty a degree of difficulty and so essentially what paul is saying is that he that desires the office of a bishop desires an excellent difficulty that's the that's the way that would you know that would be read in our understanding that he desires an excellent difficulty now when i say that i'm not complaining i'm not saying man is this difficult man is this hard you know and i don't like it and boy is this something but but here's what i will say is that the common perception of someone who is a pastor or a church leader is that the reason why they're doing that? Is because they are either lazy, or because they couldn't make it in the world. <laughs> and since they couldn't hold down a job, and they were fired five times, and you know, and and and, and no matter what happened, they were always getting demerited and you know, uh, whatever fired. Now they've chosen. Okay, God's called me into the ministry, and that it's it's kind of one of those cush jobs. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there is an excellence to it. There's an honor, but that there is certainly a difficulty. And there's a thousand things that we could talk about concerning the difficulty. But I think that the chief thing that cuts right to the heart of it all is that when you're a person that's in spiritual leadership, your role essentially is that you are leading a physical entity that is a person in spiritual or invisible things. And you are more or less, you know, in between these two realms, the visible and the invisible. And the result of that is that sometimes you have to make decisions that don't make sense. Sometimes you have to do things that are countercultural or say things that are countercultural or that land you in hot water or make you the center or the seat of criticism. You know, because of, you know, I think of Moses there. And he's just following God's leading as he leads God's people out of Egypt. And as there are three million of them, they're walking along, and on their right side, there's an unclimbable mountain range. And on their left side, there's an unclimbable mountain range. And, and then looming in front of them, right in their path where they're heading, is an unpassable body of water, the Red Sea. And it says that the people began to chide with Moses and say, wait a minute, whoa, Moses, you know, we're running from the armies of pharaoh and you're leading us you're you're bringing us to a dead end you're you're taking us to something that we can't conquer what's going on here and and, well uh, this is the way the lord is leading this is what god is telling us to do and it says that the people wanted to stone him a typical response you know a a spiritual leader i think of joshua he's faced with being the commander-in-chief it's the battle at jericho The walls are impregnable. The fortification of that city was unmatched in those days. And the people, the generals, they came to Joshua and they said, what's the plan? What's the strategy? And he said, well, I prayed. And here's what the Lord told us we're doing. We're going to walk around the city once a day for seven days. And then on the seventh day, we're going to walk around the city seven times and we're all going to blow our trumpets. And that's it. No, 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 but no, no, that's what the Lord said. And and I'm certain that he received some opposition there as they said, What are you talking about? This is not the way things work. We have swords and, you know, we are men of war and we understand the dimensions and the dynamics of battle and this is not the way what you're telling us, Joshua, Pastor Joshua. But this is what the Lord is telling us and certainly the Lord did work a great victory, didn't he? I think of Gideon there with 32,000 men. And the Lord speaks to Pastor Gideon and he says, Gideon, I can't win this battle with thirty-two thousand men. Gideon says, I thought the same thing, Lord, we need a lot more. And the Lord says, No, 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 Gideon, you have too many. You need to talk to the people and say, Whoever's afraid, go home. And so he says it, and twenty thousand something people go home. And so Gideon says, Okay, okay, Lord, all right, all right, you're in control. You're 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 God, you're leading. And and God speaks to Gideon and he says, Gideon. I can't win this battle with 10,000 people. Gideon says, I know, Lord, I was thinking the same thing. God said, No, it's too many, Gideon. I'm not going to get the glory if I win the battle with 10,000. Hey, I'll tell you what go down to the river and tell the people to drink, and whoever drinks like a dog, send them home. And the people that drink with vigilance, keep them with you. And so he sends them down, and all but 300 drink like a dog. And there's only 300 men standing at the end of the day with Gideon as he's about to go to battle against the Midianites. And God says, okay, now let's go to work. And I'm certain that those 300 men, well, they were the faithful ones, I'm sure that they were strong, but the rest of the people on looking were saying, this guy's out of his mind. And certainly, let me tell you, to be in this position, to be in a position of a pastor, can be an excellent difficulty at times, seeking to follow the leading of the Lord, and yet bring comfort and assurance to people that he is in control. It can be tedious. You know? And so he says it's an excellent difficulty that there is something to it in that, uh, in that kind of a thing. Now, the decisions and the actions that a pastor or an elder or a leader or a leadership team of a church make, they affect lives, and the stakes are high, and that's not easy. There's difficulty in that. It's excellent because you get to see God work and change lives and come through, but it certainly has a difficulty to it as you trust God and go through those those uh, seasons of testing and trying. Now, it's worthy of mention that the pastorate or a, a position in church leadership is not something that you go to school for. It, it isn't something that you choose on career day and work your way into or buy your way into, but rather it's a call of God. It's something that God works, and it's a character that's formed within, and it's something that happens from heaven through the inside, and then it works itself out. It's not something that's worked or climbed into through a a series of degrees and study and education. From God's perspective, as he looks at a pastor, and we see it here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he's going to give to us 17 characteristics that he is looking for, that he is putting into, installing literally, into someone he is raising or calling into this position, 14 of them have to do with character, the type of man or the type of person it is. Two of them, only two, have to do with giftings or giftedness, and one of them we put in the category of other. You know, it's other. But zero, none of them, have anything to do with study or preparation or diligence or any of that type of thing it's all from God's perspective separate from what we would think from a worldly vantage point now one more thing before we get into this list of things that Paul says I know that there's some of you that are sitting here tonight and you're thinking to yourself man boy did I miss out because I'm never going to be a pastor and I know that that's not God's call in my life and so I shouldn't have come here tonight. I'm opting out of this Bible study. It's not for me because I'm not the people that this scripture is talking about. Wait a minute. I would say to you, first of all, yes, you are. Because everybody leads somebody. Whether it's the children that are following your leading, that you are literally pastoring and shepherding and raising up within your home. Whether it's your coworkers or companions or neighbors or the people that are around you, everyone has someone who is looking at them as a spiritual leader in their life, if they're saved. If you're saved, someone is watching you. And so, therefore, these things apply to you very definitely, absolutely. Second of all, I would say to you that if you are a Christian, that this applies to you because as a Christian, you are under A pastor or a group of you know elders or leaders see God desires that all of his people be part of a congregation and a congregation is pastored by elders pastors and and deacons so it helps to know what one is supposed to be and so this study does apply to you and furthermore and this is probably the most important that is for those of you that want to opt out and not take notes and not care what what is said from here on out listen There's no distinction in God's mind between a pastor and a Christian. A pastor is a Christian first. And the only difference between a Christian and a pastor is that the pastor is supposed to be a little bit further along on the road that everyone else is on. In other words, the characteristics or the traits that God desires in someone who is a leader are the very things that God is working to build up and see formed in the rest of his people and so therefore this list doesn't just apply to pastors it applies to all christians these are the things that glorify god when they are worked into and then worked out in our lives And so, with that, we look at this list of things that Paul says are, you know, the important things to God when it comes to uh, who he chooses to be a pastor in his church. And the first thing that's worthy of mention, and it's right there in verse 1, is that there should be a desire for someone to be in this position, that there should very definitely be a desire. Now, we have 17 things to look through, and I'm watching the clock. I don't know why the clock is moving more like a fan tonight, Um, but... (laughs) (laughs) but we've got to get through them so we're going to pick up the pace a little bit here you know as we go but but the first thing is that there should be a desire he says that if any man desire the office of a bishop he desires a good work now when he speaks of desire he's not talking about blind ambition Someone who simply wants to be in the front or to have a position of influence or in some way to exercise authority over people and so it presents in them an opportunity to kind of, you know, show their colors or something. That's not the kind of desire that he's talking about, but rather it's more of a inward spiritual tug upon the strings of the heart an inspiration that comes from the Lord wherein he puts something in you that you just feel his calling, you feel intuitively, innately that he's equipped you in some way, or that he's called you into this capacity, and it's something that he wants to begin to form within your life. There's many people that get saved, and they fear to give their lives completely over to God. Because they're afraid that if they do that God's going to call them to be the missionary in the jungles of Africa Oh, if I give my life completely to God He's going to send me to Africa or he's going to make me a pastor. I don't want to be a pastor. Listen That's not the way God works If God has a calling in your life to be a missionary in the jungle or to be a pastor or an elder or a leader in a church He's going to implant within you a desire to do those things Because he gives us the desires of our heart psalm chapter 37 verse 4 he plants them there He puts them there And then we bring those things back to him and and, and he reveals whether that's some area of ambition And he'll burn it up and it'll dissipate or if it's something that's from him and he'll slowly fan the flame of that desire and begin to prepare the heart and do the work within the life of that person But there there must be a desire Now, having said that, I will say this about desire when it comes to being involved in the ministry, whether it's the pastorate or anything. I truly believe that this instrument of desire, and by the way, this is the other. Remember how I said there were 14 character, two giftings, and one other? This is the other. I believe this about the desire to be used of God in this capacity. I believe that it is very much like a pop-up turkey timer. You guys know what I'm talking about? remember you know thanksgiving and mom would put that thing in the turkey that white thing and, and the button would be pressed in and then the turkey would be placed into the oven that's desire it's that little button and here's what happens is god pushes this button he, he pushes it in and there's this desire that's birthed in the heart and a person brings that to the lord and they say lord are you gonna would you use me in this way would you raise me up and then god begins his work in that person's life and the years begin to go by The disappointments, the breakings, the scourging, the discipline, the blood, sweat, and tears, the trials, the valleys, the victories, and and all of these things that that go into God preparing someone with the kind of character that's going to make them a godly leader and the patient waiting, and the questionings of, God, are you really in this? Did you really call me? Or what's the point? Am I wasting my time? The where are you, gods, and all of the things that go along with it. And and somewhere over the course of all that God does and the preparation process that takes years, it makes being a doctor easy, you know, really, you know, all the things that God does, because it's lifelong. After all of that, that desire that was once there either radically changes into something so different than what it was at the beginning, or it disappears altogether so that it just doesn't even exist anymore. You know, I had a desire at one point, but I I made sure it fell off the fridge, that prayer, and I kicked it underneath, and I haven't seen that thing in years, and I have no desire anymore. And they come to a point in their life where they say, I wouldn't trade the things that God has done in me over the past however many years for anything in the world, but I would never choose it, never choose it. And it's at that point that God looks into that life and he says, okay, the turkey's done. They're ready now. And that thing pops back out. You know, I almost get the picture of someone from inside their own heart. They see that desire and they just kind of kick it out, you know, and that pop-up thing just pops out again, and God says, now they're ready. You know, they've gotten it right. They've learned what ministry is. They understand the stakes. They've seen what it's not, and, and, and they've been seasoned and prepared. It's a consistent pattern throughout Scripture. When Moses was 40, he was ready to go. When he was 80 and ready, he said, now God, send someone else. When David was just a young man, he chopped off Goliath's head and he walked 25 miles with that head all the way from you know, Gath to Hebron where the tabernacle was set up. He walked 25 miles, look what I did, and he was ready to conquer for God. 13 to 15 years later, he was down in Ziklag, completely despondent to the gall of God, not wanting it at all, and God said, now go to Hebron, the plan is going to begin. I think of Paul, who on the day of his conversion was turning Damascus upside down He was the one that no one could beat in an argument concerning the validity of the scripture and the fact, the truth of the faith. But yet the apostles had to say, hey, Saul, calm down and go home, go to Tarsus. And he spent three years in the desert and then an unknown number of years more in Tarsus, just working. The desire all but gone, everything of what he once was, that ambition to be something for God was all dissipated. Until the time that Barnabas came and said, hey, you know, we could use a teacher in Antioch. Would you come? And the plan of God began in his life. And the pattern is clear in those that God uses is that there's a preparation. It begins with a desire. It turns into a beating. And it ends with a humble service and dependence upon the Lord. And so he says that there must be a desire. Then he gets into the character traits uh, here in verse two. He says, a bishop then must be blameless. Aren't you glad, Pastor Bob and Pastor Mike, Pastor Paul Sweeney and Sal Gaglio and, and myself, aren't you glad that you have the only blameless men in all of Dutchess County? <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> hey, we could all go home, right? I mean, he, say, he just said blameless. I don't know about you, but I know about me, and I'm far from blameless. What the word means that Paul employs here. It's a word that means above reproach. What it means is that that no accusation should be able to stick. And that is that the character of the man is such that if an accusation were to come or if someone were to hurl some kind of a thing at them about, you know, a questionable behavior, that it would just it wouldn't even compute in the mind that it could be a possibility because of the the the, the reputation or the character of the person that's being spoken of. That's what we see in the young man Joseph. If you can think back to Genesis, you know, the the son of Jacob, Joseph. It says that he was a man who feared God and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And an accusation was brought against him. That he had tried to force himself upon Potiphar's wife. And the penalty in those days for a slave who is accused of such a crime as that was immediate death, beheading. We don't see that happening with Joseph. He was put into the prison because Potiphar was obligated to justify his wife. But the fact that his life was spared was that his character testified to the um, lie of, of what it really was, is that he, he wasn't guilty of it, and it was because of the character. And a pastor is to be that type of person, that type of character that he's not perfect, and none of us are perfect. But that if an accusation comes or if something arises, the character is such that that, that that the church will look on and say, it just it just can't be. It's just not, it's not there. We know that that's not the type of man that we have running our church. And so he says that he's to be blameless or above reproach, not leading a double standard or a double life or doing things in his private life that discredit his public ministry. Then he goes on and he says that he's to be the husband of one Wife. He must be blameless and the husband of one wife. And what that literally means is that he's to be a one woman man. This isn't speaking necessarily concerning marital status, but rather it's speaking about moral character. It's not saying that this can't be a man that was ever divorced prior to the time that he came to Christ or that he was divorced on biblical grounds, that is, that his wife left him or was unfaithful, and in the process of time, he was remarried and and things were done in a biblical way. That's not what Paul's getting at. Nor is he saying that he must be married. That's not the idea either. Paul wasn't married even at the time that he wrote this. It would make him a hypocrite. Jesus, who was the model pastor, was not married. It's not that you have to be married. But the idea here is that he is a one woman man. It speaks to a man who is faithful to keep his vows and is not given to an adulterous eye or an adulterous inclination. He doesn't have an eye for women. You know, he's given, you know, that thing over completely. It's a settled issue and it's no longer something there where he has to worry about it or people have to worry about it. But but he's a one woman man. That's the type of man that he is. It can wreak havoc on every front when a pastor is, is wound up or, or caught up in the act of adultery. I remember years ago hearing Pastor Chuck Smith talk about the phone call that he received in the middle of a night that he had to come and bail one of his pastors out of jail because he was caught soliciting a prostitute. And I remember hearing that story just as a young Christian. I was there. I was in the second row and hearing him tell the story. And, and inside my heart, I'm thinking to myself, how could this be? How can this happen? And he went on to describe how that tore apart his family, the, the, the man who, who had done that, and how it completely decimated his church. His church went completely blotto. And all of the people in it, their faith was overturned. They were scandalized. It was ugly. And how it affects other churches and the ministries. You know, I'll never forget that. And and for someone to be to be in the ministry and to have that type of a character flaw, if Satan can get a hold of that, he can do incredible damage. It's like setting off a nuclear bomb, you know, that he can do in people's lives. And so Paul says he's to be a one-woman man. That's the type of man that he's to be. He moves on from there and he says that he's to be vigilant. The word vigilant means a man who is of a sober mind, who has good judgment, and who has a diligent focus. It's someone who is focused on the ministry or on the role that God has called them into. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have a sense of humor. It doesn't mean that he's stoic, you know, and lifeless, and all the time he's just given to this serious demeanor and he never jokes around. But the idea there is that when it comes to who he is as a man, and when it comes to his position of leadership within a church, he doesn't lose focus of what he's doing or forget what's at stake. If you go to a doctor, you don't care if he's a goof, you know, if he jokes around a little bit or if he has a quirky personality. But when he puts you under the knife and you're on the operating table, You want him to be 100% focused on what he's doing and you want assurance that he knows what he's doing. You don't want someone who's a clown to be operating uh, on you in that type of a thing. And when you're a pastor, when you're a spiritual leader or an elder or someone who people look up to, people make decisions that affect their lives based upon the things that you say. And the stakes are high when it comes to that. They form their concepts of who God is and their understanding of eternal things based upon the things that you do and the things that you say. And so as a pastor or an elder or a leader, you can't afford to ever wing it, you know, or just kind of not know what you're doing and just go with it, you know. One of the things that I love about Bobby is that he, you know, you know, we all know he loves to goof around. And he, he loves to, 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 to poke fun at himself. And he keeps a light heart. And he's constantly doing that. And, you know, and I see it day in and day out. And he, he is that way. He's great, lighthearted and all. But when it comes to people, and when it comes to the word of God, and when it comes to the ministry, he doesn't miss a beat. He is 100% fully engaged in what he's doing. And that's been a great example to me. He doesn't mess around when it comes to ministry things. He knows what's at stake in these things. And it's important for a pastor that he be a man who's vigilant. The next word that he uses there is that he must be sober. And and the word in the Greek is, the definition is, that he's self-controlled and that he is stable. An elder or a spiritual leader is to be a person who is stable. Now the opposite of that is someone who is led by their emotions. They're quickly drawn off track by what they see going on somewhere else or in another church. Or they're moved by the way that they feel. They, they go by their feelings. Or they go by something that they hear or by sight in, in some way, but they're not stable, they're not anchored in what it is that God has called them to do. You know, The Apostle Paul said to his churches, he said this, he said, follow me as I follow Christ. He was a man who knew where he was going and he knew what he was doing and he understood the the, the role that God had given to him and he did it with acute focus and sobriety. He didn't lead the church to the left hand or to the right, but he took them where it was that Jesus was having them to go. When I look around the church today and consider the things that a lot of pastors are doing, it raises the question in my mind, who are they following? One week there. Into psychology, you know and doing psychological things the next week They're decorating their church and making it look like a movie theater or a broadway showroom the next week They're off on a trend uh, of the latest bestseller or something and the next week They're doing a series on sex and human relationships and and you start to wonder and you say Well, where are they going? Where are they leading and you start to think, you know, are these people following Jesus or are they following the bestseller list? You know, we, we could call them the BS pastors, right? The, the, B, the bestseller list. That's what, that's what they're following. You know? And you get the sense that they're not, they're not concerned with the health of God's flock. They're concerned with growing a crowd. They're more concerned with heads and numbers than they are with giving people the truth of God's word and the message that God has for them and to encourage them in their walk with Christ. And Paul says that a pastor is to be a man who has an acute stability, an awareness of where he's going, a soberness, a self-controlled stability in it. Jesus said, feed my sheep. It's very simple. It isn't complex. It doesn't require courses and articles and subscriptions to Christianity today and demographics. It doesn't require that. It's very simple. He's given us his word. He said, give my word to my people and I'll bless that. And God blesses his word. And so a pastor is to be self-controlled and stable. And then he says, of good behavior. And the word in the Greek is the word kosmos. It's kind of fun to say, right? And the root of it is that same word we talked about last week of kosmene, or where we get cosmo or cosmopolitan. And what it means literally is it's a goodness in what is seen, the outward. That there's to be good outward behavior. And the idea here is that what people see when they observe your life is in perfect alignment with what your position demands. Is that there's a congruency between what they see and what you are as a pastor or as a leader or an elder. Sometimes the most impacting sermon that a person will experience is when they run into a pastor or an elder in a public setting, and observe the way they live. And when they see the way that they carry themselves, or the way that they treat the people that they're with, or the way that they act towards someone who doesn't know who they are, that will speak volumes more than sometimes what they will say behind the pulpit or in a Bible study setting. And so it's imperative that there be good behavior. I remember one time uh, when I was just young in the faith and I was in the carpenter's union and I brought my Bible with me to work every day. I even brought a guitar. I brought a guitar onto a union job. We were building a jail in Monroe County, and 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 I remember, you know, they thought I was crazy. I had Jesus stickers all over my hard hat, and you know, and, and everything was just Jesus, Jesus. I was playing the guitar and, and everything, and they made fun of me and I didn't care, and we'd get into discussions, and and one day. Uh, there was a, during lunch, and all the guys were there, and I was talking to the foreman, and, and we were talking about an issue, you know, a, a work issue, and he and, and he said, "Who said that?" You know, it was something with a, uh, an issue, and he said, "Who said that? Who said this?" And I said, "The inspector. The inspector. He's the one that who who said it?" And I said, "The guy that looks like a frog," and he did, you know. <laughs> And he knew exactly who I was talking about, you know. But when I said that, the room went completely silent and all eyes turned right on me. And nobody said a word. Nobody reproved me or rebuked me, but everybody stopped what they were doing and they just looked at me. And I knew exactly what happened. Is that I just did something, I said something that was inconsistent with the profession that I was making as a Christian. And you see, when the world sees that, they know it. They understand that that's not good behavior. That's not the way a Christian behaves. And much less a pastor, the stakes are much higher. And so Paul says it's important that they're be given to good behavior. And then he says that they're given to hospitality or a lover of hospitality. And what that literally means is that it, it, it's a character trait that's important to God that an elder or a pastor be a lover of people. Ministry and people are inseparable agents. You cannot have one without the other. Ministry is two people, it's for people, it's about people. It's people. And if a pastor is insulated or isolated from the human element, it greatly undercuts the power and effectiveness of the ministry. I've seen leaders, spiritual leaders, that are like this. They like to teach. They like the, you know, this part of things, but they don't like the visitations. They don't like the, the, the individual counseling or conversations and that kind of thing. And what happens very often in that type of situation is that those people become very harsh in the things that they say from the pulpit. Or the things that they write, or their blogs, they become very harsh, and and they lose touch. They lose sensitivity to what people are going through, uh, you know, as they trudge through this life, this difficulty that we're in, you know. And it's important that a pastor is a lover of people, that they don't lose the human element of what goes in to the ministry. One of the main reasons that Jesus came in human flesh. Hebrews tells us in chapter 2 and then again in chapter 4 and in chapter 5 that he came and took on human flesh for the very reason of feeling all of the weaknesses of our infirmities so that he would be able to sympathize. And if that was important for Jesus, then it's imperative that a pastor be a people person. And so he's a lover of hospitality. Next he goes on and he says there at the end of verse 2 that he should be apt to teach. Now, this is one of only two mentionings in this chapter that are not character-related, but rather have to do with a gifting, something that comes to God in, in the way of a gift. In Romans chapter 12, verse 7, when Paul was talking about the ministry gifts of the Spirit, he talked about those that have the gift of teaching. Those that are given teaching, let them wait upon their teaching in ephesians chapter 4 when paul talks about the various roles of spiritual leadership in the church he says that the lord gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastor teachers and in the language the original language there's no and it's pastor teachers it's one ministry it's connected is that a pastor is a feeder or a teacher and so A a teaching gift or a teaching ability is a necessity in the ministry or in the arena of being a pastor The the word that's used by paul here in first timothy where he says apt to teach it's one word and what it literally means is I wrote it down instructive. That's it 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 just means instructive. It doesn't mean that he's brilliant It doesn't mean that he can can just describe all the mysteries of god But that he just very simply has the ability to instruct I think that the best biblical definition of what it means to teach is from Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 8. And it just says this very simply. It just says, so they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. That's what it means to teach. It's three very simple steps. Read, explain, apply. What, what does this say? What does it mean, and what does it have to do with my life and it 's a very simple thing it 's not complex, and I believe that almost anybody can do it and It opens the doors for a lot of people to to receive the calling of God to be uh, you know, a, a, a pastor if if they want to teach you know it 's interesting to me that when people think about a pastor or when a church wants to hire a pastor, oftentimes this is the main thing that they're concerned with. What does he teach like? Let us get a bunch of his CDs or have him come here and audition and we'll evaluate the things that he says. It's interesting to me that that's way down on God's list, that he's way more concerned with the character of the man who's leading the church than he is with the gifts or the ability of the man that's leading the church. It's almost as if God says, if I could just have a hold of their heart, if they'll give themselves to me and let me be the source for their godly character, all they have to do is be apt to teach. And I can work with that. You know? But with people, it's so much different. We look at the outward so many times and we neglect the character. But to God, he says, they must be able to teach. He goes on then in verse three, and he gives us a series of knots, things that he is not. And he says, first of all, that they are not given to wine. The word that he uses here when he says this, the phrase, it's a Greek phrase. It's par oins, or I probably said that so wrong, but there's a reason I said it. It's because par is where we get the word parallel or partner. You know, it's a par, it means alongside of, and oines is wine. And so he's not one who is alongside of or has a partnership with wine. And what it literally means is that he's not to be a person that has a relationship with wine. That's what the phrase means. A pastor is not to have a relationship with wine. And that is that it's not to be a part of your life if you're a pastor. That's what Paul is saying. You're not to have a relationship with it. During the past month, I've had two instances where people from the church have stopped in, dropped in at my house and visited me unannounced. Now, that doesn't bother me. I don't mind if that happens. I don't know if it bothers my wife, you know, but, but it doesn't bother me, you know, if people do that. I, I enjoy it sometimes, you know. It's a surprise. But what if when those people came and they came into my house, I invited them in, I had a cracked open bottle of Budweiser, up on the countertop, you know, there where I was seated, you know. Now, now some people would think, well, maybe that's not a good or a a big deal, you know. But for some people, they would look at that, and that to them would be, uh, that's a problem. You know, there's something wrong with that, you know, not not being legalistic, not being, uh, you know, uh, you know, over harsh about things but but that that to them would be a problem that that there's something that goes or or what if they were walking up my driveway and they saw in the recycled container there was two empty six packs and two empty bottles of wine or, or or something like that and they and they just saw that what would that do in their mind would it change the way that they receive counsel or something and it's an important thing for a pastor to realize the effect that he has in people's lives and Paul says it is not wise, it is not right for a pastor, a leader, an elder to have a relationship with wine. Now, people can argue with me uh, about that. That's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm halfway giving you my conviction uh, about it. I don't feel that it's right for someone that's in that position to be doing that. But you can tell me what you think, or, or just keep it to yourself, and I won't argue with you about it. You know. But he goes on then, and he says that he's not to be a striker. And the word means that he's not to be ready with a blow. He's not to be vengeful or defensive or abusive, not to be that type of person that's always vindictive of himself. It's like that truck driver, you know, who went into the truck stop and he'd been driving all night long and he just wanted some breakfast. And so he sits up at the deli counter and he orders himself an egg sandwich and he's seated there and, and he starts eating it. And, and a couple of hell's angels drove in on their motor- motorcycles, you know, four guys, they drive up and they park and, and they come in in their leather coats and their big beards and they have been on the road and and they kind of smelled bad and two of them sat on one side of the truck driver and two of them sat on the other side and, and, and you know, they looked at him and, and then one of them took the plate of eggs out from under him and just took a bite of it and, and then passed it on to his friend and, and, and they looked at this truck driver and they said, hey, what are you going to do about it? knowing he was outnumbered and, you know, that he was no match for them in any way, he just quietly got up and he left a few dollars there on the the deli counter for the waitress, and he got up and he went out and and got in his truck and left. And these guys, they started laughing, (laughs) and they looked at the waitress who had come over and they said, he's not much of a man, is he? And she said, well, I don't know about that, but he sure isn't much of a truck driver. He just ran over four Harleys. <laughs> and that's not the type of man a pastor's supposed to be, you know. <laughs> not retaliatory. And then he says, not greedy for gain. And that is that he's not to be in it for the money, he's not to have somewhere in his heart a personal quest. For wealth. And that can hide itself in a lot of various different ways. You know, someone can get into it, but yet still have that in them somewhere where they say, well, someday I'm going to be a billionaire. Someday I'm going to make it. You know, I have the ability and the tenacity, and someday I'm going to do it. That's a dangerous thing for someone in the ministry to have that in their heart. Because at some point, if God begins to use you, that can come alive in a very negative way. And you could become. Uh, one who's tearing down the work of God. When people give to the kingdom of God, when you give here at Calvary Chapel, you're giving because you want to support the ministry that God is raising up here and because you want to expand the influence of the ministry of the gospel within the world. And that's the reason why you give. You don't give so that the shepherd or the pastor can live an enriched and lavish lifestyle. That's not why. And that's, in God's mind, an abomination. And so it ought not to be. And so he says, not greedy for filthy lucre. And then he goes on and he says that he's to be patient. And that is that he's to be patient with people. And he's to be one who's patient with God. That is that he waits upon the Lord for the Lord's decision and the Lord's leading in the church. You can't be restless in the ministry. And you can't be restless in life as a Christian. How many of us can say, hey, I made a real quick decision, and I was glad I did it? Most of the times when we make snap judgments, especially in big things that affect other people, we live to regret it. And so it's important that he be patient. He says, not a brawler. The word in the Greek, you're going to like this one, it's a machos. You know, it sounds Spanish, doesn't it? But it's not as Greek. It's a machos. And that's exactly what it means, someone who's a macho. Someone who is intimidating, unmovable, invincible, a my way or the highway type of guy, that's not a pastor. It says of Saul that he drove the herd. He was not God's shepherd, but it says of David that he followed the flock. Two different things, completely different things, and a pastor is to be, you know, gentle. Then he says not covetous. And the word covetous means literally never satisfied. A person who is covetous is a person who is constantly satisfied by the accumulation of more. They get what they were seeking after and they're satisfied for a little while, but then that appetite comes back and they want even more. And that can be a dangerous thing to have in the ministry, to not be content with what God is doing or where God has you. And it's not a good thing to have. And so he's not to be covetous. And then he says, one that ruleth well his own house you know we're so out of time i'm sitting here like trying to be like an auctioneer going through these things and and i'm such a you know failure at getting through the allotted portion and so i'm not going to do this to you let's stop and we'll pick up next week and we'll finish the chapter because there's some great things uh here in this whole concept of ruling well the house and then in what he says next about not being a novice and so rather than seeing me start to sweat and talk fast uh you know let 's pick up next week and we 'll go on and, and have mercy on me for taking too long in chapter three let's <laughs> let 's pray together, <laughs> Father, we just thank you tonight for the word of God. We thank you, Lord, that you lay these things out and, and Lord, I know I know that even tonight as i as I teach these things that are written for a pastor, I know that you 're speaking to each person here. I sense, Lord, in my heart that you're challenging each one of us as we consider these things and we see ourselves in the light of it. We know, Lord, that there's things that you want to do in our lives. And so we come to you tonight, Lord. We don't want to be showman Christian. We don't want to be those that simply occupy a place in the pew and call ourselves Christians or put a bumper sticker on our car. (coughs) but that we want to be those men and women that have the character of Christ formed and forged within our heart. We want to be Christians with character, people that the world can look on and say, that's an example of a godly person or a godly man or woman. And so we ask you, Father, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, write these things deep inside what we are. We pray that you would forge this character in us that you would cause us to be submissive to your ways and to the things of you. And that you would give us a sense of destiny and calling and help us to understand that our lives count. And in the interactions that we have, in the opportunities that we take to share you with others, we're storing up for ourselves an account of eternal value in heaven. And so we pray, Father, work in us. We pray, Father, that you would continue to keep us as a church grounded and settled in the things that are important. We pray for our pastor, Bobby. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us a man that has character, a man that understands the cost of ministry and that's been raised up by you. We pray that you'd continue to let your light shine from him and that you'd give him wisdom and vision in leading us, Lord. We pray that we would be a church that brings you glory and honor you would be pleased to dwell here and move here. And so bless, Lord, bless your people tonight. Have mercy upon us. and Keep us in our ways. Pray that as you go from here tonight, the presence of God's Holy Spirit would go with you. That his peace would so fill your heart and your life. That you would sense his leading with you. That he'd give you answers in the things that you're seeking him about. That he would cause the circumstances in your life to be resolved. And that you would bring glory to his name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.